I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast. Produced in association with Advantage Go. Enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Patrick Tiernan, Chief of Markets at Lloyd's, has the broadest job description of almost anyone in insurance. He's responsible for whole abstract ideas such as underwriting and distribution at a vast global insurance marketplace. And this can make it sometimes hard to know where to start. My job as a journalist is to take the abstract and turn it into something really specific. And so listening back to today's interview, I must admit I was sometimes a bit annoyed with myself for not diving into every secondary and tertiary line of questioning that our discussion was throwing up. But then I decided to stop beating myself up. There was so much to talk about. With unlimited time, we could have done a series of at least five podcasts. And the unanswered questions are there to be asked next time. Always leave them wanting more. But what this interview is, is a really useful walk around one of the biggest jobs in insurance and an introduction to the person tasked with taking that role on. We get to know a lot of what makes him tick. And there's enough here to get a feel for what sort of reign Patrick's is going to be over number one Lime Street, London, in the coming years. Patrick is incredibly accessible and transparent and comes across as a very level-headed, logical, thoughtful and reasonable person. It's clear he has already listened to what the market wants and thought very deeply about what needs to change to keep Lloyds relevant, influential and competitive in the future. He isn't top-down or dictatorial and, with perhaps the exception of when he talks about sustainable underwriting profitability across the cycle, he doesn't seem in any way dogmatic. He's also a great communicator, and his delivery is laden with considerable Irish wit and charm. It's very hard not to like him. As a first portrait, it's a broad brush one, but I think listening to this podcast will give you a good idea of the big picture. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Patrick, thanks so much for taking a bit of time to talk to the voice of insurance. I always said everyone's really, really busy, but I think this time, I think it's fair to say you're incredibly busy. You've got this incredibly wide-ranging role at Lloyd's. Why don't we you start by telling us a bit about yourself, actually, some of your career before you started, but then also what people should be expecting from you now that you've really got your feet under the table in this role? 
Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. I'm a long-time listener, but first-time talker. I was just thinking as I was coming in this morning, listening to John Neal on this about 12 months ago, formed a, a key part of my interview practice for this role. So it uh, feels like we've come full circle. I'm Irish, as you guys will hear, and how this translates across this medium. Hopefully I can keep it clear. I'm an accountant by background, trained in London. when I moved over in 97, spent three years in London with Ernst & Young, then decided I want to work by a beach. So I went over to Sydney to become a beach bum discovered I wasn't very good at that, so ended up working for HIH over there for three years when they were in liquidation. Then I followed a girl home from Australia who is now my wife, happily, otherwise this would be a terrible story, and uh, spent a year in Dublin, three or four years in New York, and then came back to London in about 2008 full-time. Wow. We've had some very interesting experiences with HIH. Yes, well, I tried kite surfing once, and it was a total disaster. <laughs> I'm sure surfing on Bondi Beach was not necessary for everyone. And the water's a lot colder than it. You'd think it would be really warm, and the yes. water's, water's actually freezing, isn't it? So, Given that rounded experience, what sort of style should we expect from you? You're someone who's seen everything, having you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, I suppose. I doubt I've seen everything, because uh, certainly the last two years has made us all a little bit more circumspect as to what we have and haven't seen before. But I think I've been lucky in the past, lucky to work with people who've given me a chance. So in terms of leadership style, I'd like to think I'll be quite empowering for those who work on the team with me. I think learning to listen and be humble in what, what you can achieve on your own is a key part of what I've learned over the years, that nothing can be achieved in isolation. It's all about winning hearts and minds and winning people over to your agenda for the future. I think I'm pretty open and transparent. You know, I like to be challenging but predictable. Some people won't like that, some will. I would class myself as fiercely competitive in all things. You know, I've got two kids that when they beat me in card games or Monopoly or whatever at the weekends, so I'm competitive in most things that I do. I'm pretty determined. But at the end of the day, I don't like to take myself too seriously. I think we can be successful in these roles and we can be successful as an industry and have a bit of fun as well and be thoughtful about the legacy we leave behind for those who come after us. This is an incredibly broad role, Chief of Markets. In fact, the remarkable thing is if you're the fourth person in this role, it's, that's not actually true because each time the role has had a new incumbent, the role's changed. Certainly it changed from Rolf Tolle to Tom Bolt. His job title changed. I'm not sure if the remit changed exactly. And then when John Hancock came in again, the job title and perhaps some of the remit also changed. And now there's another job title. So if you can walk us around the perimeters of sort of what you're bailiwick is, that would be really, really helpful because some people might assume that you're the new Rolf Tolle and that's not actually true, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would never presume such, but you're probably right. I think the perimeter is in its simplest form is underwriting, distribution, oversight, and the portfolio risk management. And then, you know, the sort of the key tenets that are sort of added to that and to sort of giving a bit of detail would be the new entrance, which has become a bit of a, probably a, a bigger focus in recent years, and Europe and our solution to post-Brexit world. So that's the perimeter. I think the thinking behind the job, or John's thinking, sort of bringing those two elements, those two directorates together, was to give whoever was sitting in this seat a balance of carrot and stick, you know, to use the old Teddy Roosevelt phrase, to win hearts and minds, but to have people compromise in your direction on, on other areas. So I think that was the sort of thinking behind it. I also 
sit on the council and the executive committee of Lloyd's, as you'd expect. And in the coming days, I expect to be one of the first secondees to Lloyd's Europe from London. You know, don't ask others to do what you want to do yourself, I think is the message there. And then at the heart of this, I'm responsible for quite a lot of people, depending on which way you measure it. There's about 400 of us in the markets world, and I'm acutely aware of my responsibilities for their careers and the exchange of talent with the market and the ability for us to bring the best and the brightest into Lloyd's for a long or short period of time to help the market achieve what it needs. We'd never want to be stale in terms of our ideas or our connection with the market. So yeah, I think that's pretty much the perimeter as I see it. You're going to be getting massive loyalty points on this Eurostar to Brussels and you'll be able to take the whole family for, for freebies every, every other weekend. But what are your top priorities? I mean, given such a broad remit, you know, like underwriting, I mean, what are the top priorities? One of the key priorities when I was setting out was to get to this point without being chased out of the market by an angry mob. So um, that's sort of priority number one done to make it to my 100-ish days, whatever, uh, chat with yourself. You're right. I mean, I, th- I think I'd, I'd sort of maybe break the priorities into three key buckets without going into all the detail that I do with my own team. Performance, cost of doing business, and leadership on key topics being bucket number one. I mean, I think they are what we probably call table stakes, because if we don't do those, the rest don't really matter. In bucket two, I think the market would expect from me at the moment is to ensure that all of the hard work on remediation that was done under John Hancock and the team forms the bedrock of an ability to take advantage of the current conditions of the market and to be supportive for those who are ready to take that jump. And bucket three is is probably about looking forward, you know, and ensuring, I sort of mentioned competitiveness a, a minute ago, ensuring that as a market, we can be competitive in the long term. So looking beyond the 40 odd billion of business that we have in Lloyd's today and looking to see how I can create the conditions so that the participants in Lloyd's can compete in the long term with other markets, quite frankly, with Bermuda, with other big domestics, et cetera. So give them every advantage that they need on top of what's already here to be able to look forward and think there's no reason that we can't underwrite the business that we want to in Lloyd's. And on the remediation, obviously, we've been through a lot of pain, certainly instigated and mostly executed by your predecessor sure. and, and John himself. A lot of tough things, obviously, you know, when I was a journalist at that time, writing stories of different syndicates and different operations closing or being closed effectively. What's the message now? Is it continual revolution or is there any message of, I think there was a phrase of feet being on people's throats or, or something a bit like that. But is it sort of feet not necessarily on throat, but is it something a bit more civilised? Um, <laughs> Presumably you're not going to say, well, there's going to be no discipline anymore. No, quite. I mean, I, th- I think it would definitely be more evolution than revolution. I think that's not what's needed at the moment. But I think we've probably shifted our focus such that the amount of time spent by the team on the underperformers was inordinate over the last few years because it needed to be. And what we want to do going forward is to shift the balance of our resources towards helping those who are really good and strong businesses. And they need our support to grow. They need our support to take maybe some rocks out of the stream that are blocking their progress and blocking their ability to compete and bring new business in. At the same time, in order to do that efficiently, we'll be focusing on, I think we've said this quite a few times, we'll be focusing on the sustainability of the business plans of the weaker performers, because we can't spend all of our time, we can't keep spending all that time with them. We need to get on with the other things. 
So it's not like a McKinsey thing where institutionally you just decimate your business every year and just take the bottom percentile and just get rid of it or bottom 10. That's not necessarily the sense of what you're wanting to do. Or you'd rather the whole 100 carried on and became 110, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it would be unfair to the better performers to think they're not doing that themselves anyway. I mean, that they are constantly taking out the bits of their business that they don't think is very good. And the better ones don't need lawyers to tell them how to do it. We just need to be supportive. But there is a point where with certain players, if they can't radically change their business model, they just aren't sustainable. It's not because we're being tougher or we're holding feet to throats. It just doesn't make any sense going forward. And I think we will be fairly decisive on those conversations. If they can't come to that conclusion themselves, you will help them help them do so. <laughs> Yes, but I think having the right conversations allows people to reach those conclusions and having them with the right people. So making sure that we are engaged with boards and global strategists so that we're not having conversations in isolation. And I suppose if you can't make a good profit in this market, then you probably won't ever make a good profit. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair with probably the caveat that the innovation that comes in this market, we don't expect every part of every line to be super profitable just because it's 2021 and We've had 15 quarters or whatever of rate improvement. We're not going to be overly dogmatic, but at the same time, if you've got a mature business and you're writing mature line, what's the excuse? Yeah, you should know. Right. Before we get to the next question, I'm here with Zoe Bolton, the founder of Actuarial Headhunters, Bolton Associates, who have kindly supported this podcast. Zoe, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about Bolton Associates and what you can do for our listeners? Hi, Mark. Thanks for having us. We're delighted to be supporting you and the Voice of Insurance. At Bolton Associates, we recruit actuaries and analysts specifically into the general insurance market. We don't deviate from that. We work across the industry with chief actuaries, pricing, reserving, capital modelling, and the juniors looking to break into the market. It's what we do. If you know an actuary, we've probably spoken to them. We've all done this for rather a long time. I think we have at Bolton Associates over 100 years of experience of doing this. And with the opportunities into the MGAs, InsureTech, data science and the startups, we've never been busier. If you're looking to expand or indeed establish your actuarial analytics offering, you should be talking to us. At Bolton Associates, we aim to be part of the market and friends to it. And so we offer our clients a real-time view of the whole actuarial landscape. And personally, there's nothing I enjoy more than being an advisor in that true sense to when a startup or insurer syndicate MGA asks for our input. As I said, we're good at what we do. We enjoy what we do. So any actuaries out there, hello again. Uh, All companies looking for one, do get in touch. Well, thank you so much, Zoe. And let's get back to the podcast. In terms of that development of that oversight, so how's that going to change? It seems like you're talking about being more proactively positive. So it won't just be light touch. It'll be, let's sort of help dig new channels for you to actively support rather than light touch. So you won't even be this benignly leaving the top performers to go and do their own thing. You might actually be talking to them about how to improve their business, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think on reflecting, the prize for the best performers is to be left alone. We wondered, could we up the package a little bit? (laughs) So that if I'm going through the airport with BA, I'm hoping for a cup of coffee and a biscuit rather than just to be left to my own devices. So I think we can do more. But I think it's really important that we don't set off on our own to cure problems that we think are issues, that we are highly engaged with the LMA, with the brokers in the market, with the the key managing agents, of course, so that we're in conversation as to what are the big rocks and how do we move them. I would hope that these market conditions allow us as a markets team to 
you know, as the sun is shining to actually go and fix some critical structural issues. So rather than sort of hoping that we win more business, for example, on an inwards reinsurance, that we take a look at are there reasons that we're not competitive and deal with them and ensure that we get our managing agents on the front foot. And the and other key and long talked about issues, you know, our competitiveness on cost. What are the determined and game-changing steps that we make both on acquisition costs and on expenses such that at the very least, we remove the shadow of Lloyd's and the Lloyd's costs so that, you know, if they're embedded in businesses, there's only so much we can do. But if they're a reflection on, you know, longstanding processes or distribution channels, what is it that we can do to move the needle and move it significantly? Yes, I mean, I suppose this is the, the core of everything, is that how do you get that balance between growth of good things, that agility to be able to react reasonably quickly to things, relevance and innovation. And I suppose innovation is part of relevance because if you don't innovate along with the world itself, you become less relevant to it, but relevance in terms of providing an actual solution and then also making a profit while you do that. Do you have any inbuilt biases? Which one do you put yourself in? If you know, I'm a sort of psychoanalyst trying to ask which sort of chief underwriting officer should we describe you as uh, of Lloyd? Which one are you? Do you love going after the new things? Do you like making the old things work more efficiently or what? I would say that my bias is probably that I'm slightly trapped in logical thought. The way I see it, the base building block is sustainability, you know, to have a sustainable business model. If you continue to be sustainable and to deliver, you earn relevance. And if you use your relevance wisely, you gain influence. I think that's the sort of the logical flow for me. So that's why we don't say performance is our number one objective just because we can't think of anything else to say. It's because we deeply believe in it. We deeply believe that to have the customers, brokers, the rating agencies, the regulatory trust in us, that we must perform and perform to an acceptable standard. I suppose no one really wants a counterparty that loses money every year because they, no. I'm the fool for being the other counterparty. Well, that may result in difficult, well, it has resulted in a difficult few years and difficult conversations with risk managers, customers, etc. Done the right way, everybody gets that. A Lloyd's market that doesn't make money is of no use to anybody in the risk-taking or risk-transfer world. So I think that's sort of base. Then I think when we talk about relevance, I would have thought that the last few years, you know, during the pandemic and, the, and all of the various crisis points that that threw up, it felt a watershed moment for our industry. We were going to stand up and be counted and be part of the solution or sort of wash our hands and say the policy says what it says. And I think Lloyd's Market did a good job in standing up and sort of ensuring that the resilience was demonstrated, first and foremost, that we were going to be here through this. In terms of the payment of claims, I think, well, I should have my stats to hand, but I think it's 80% of valid claims that have been notified have been paid. We still have a big chunk of IBNR for future issues. And very importantly, Lloyd's has taken the lead in a number of areas of being solution focused. Most recently on the, I know it's a small scheme, but the live entertainment scheme, it was the Lloyd's market through the LMA that stood up and partnered with the treasury on that. That project parcel, you know, the coverage for the distribution of the vaccines, fantastic. And I think as we look for influence going forward, learning the lessons of uh, the last few years is critical. What do we not have in place? What did we not do right to plan for what was on high on everybody's risk registers? But were we operationally ready? Should that now be taken into account by us 
as we think about future threats from systemic cyber event or from solar flashes or whatever the new issues are or sustained power outages. I mean, as we just, you don't need to spend too long in the news to, to realize where some of these threats are as we come out of this. And we said earlier on that one of the priorities would be leadership and leadership on these key issues, I think would be very beneficial to the market that we use our influence to be there at initial points of either policy setting or risk thinking such that the benefit of the expertise that's in this market is brought to bear early in the solutions, be they private solutions between carriers and customers or between brokers and capital, bringing the right capital to bear, but also public-private solutions where we know or we're learning over the last couple of years where the perimeter of the private markets can be. Can we in the future maybe have our pool scenario set up pre-event? We're pretty good at doing them after. Can we be better at doing them in advance of imminent risks? What about other innovations? I mean, you've got an innovation facility, we've seen the uh, key syndicate, all sorts of things. In general, what's Lloyd's role in trying to to promote innovation? Obviously, you've got the Lloyd's Lab as well. Is that kind of almost seeding or providing this first sort of sand pit for people to go and experiment with some of these things in a safe environment? Yeah, I mean, I I think the strength of Lloyd's on a lot of these issues is the ability to convene. So having the lab within the building here brings people who think differently via tech or via customer solution perspectives, that they link closely with those who know how to structure risk transfer and know how to price it, most importantly. So I think Lloyd's has a strong convening role to play there. But also in, in, in terms of, as we think forward, I mean, I, we had a discussion at council over the summer where we sort of showed the first motor policy was at Lloyd's, the first aviation policy, the first nuclear, first, first, first. And these things take a long time to germinate into multi-billion pound or dollar premium businesses. But taking the first step needs support. So I think it's key for us as a markets team and you know, as we work alongside Burkhar Kisa and the capital folks that we create the conditions where we are looking to understand new risk rather than always saying, well, if it's new, it's bad. New doesn't have to be bad. You know, we can spend an awful lot of time just avoiding things, but shrinking to greatness has proved unsuccessful for everybody as far as I'm aware of. So I think as we look forward, we must be confident in our ability to take measured risk and learn from that. Well, it sounds a bit like there's a spirit of Cuthbert Heath, who famously said, why not to a broker? I'm not sure if it was to do the first aviation cover for the Wright brothers or, or that kind of, or it was either that or San Francisco earthquakes or Banker's Blanket Bond or one of the things he was famous for, excessive loss or other inventions of, of, of his, but his catchphrase was why not. So you want to be more the sort of, rather than the definitely no way to be, let's actually see, try and make these things happen. Is it more of a pitch? Obviously, given also Lloyd's capital base these days and the, the top 20 insurers more or less are here in one shape, way, shape or form, is it the pitch then to become almost their sort of laboratory? As I said, I'm an accountant by position. I'm not a, an, an innovator or a visionary. So I, I, I'm not sure I'd be on the why not Cuthbert Heath or Jack Kennedy style, but maybe how. I mean, I think one of the tools that we have today that we didn't have in the past was the ability to measure and to model forward. So I think just to avoid the difficult, I think is not good enough, but to take measured steps forward is critical to our legacy and to our relevance. Yes, a bit more cautious, but you would never say no out of hand. Do you want people to show you how it's going to work and have a considered view about how, and some scientific, at least projections that make a certain amount of sense to you as an accountant? Yeah. 
not necessarily the not fancy just, ones, just, yeah. I think doing the same things again, but saying we've digitalized it is not new. You sort of mentioned key and some of the other innovations coming through. At the heart of everything we do must be seeing a customer need, being able to price it, and having good underwriting at its core. So I don't think there's any shortcuts around that. If we can figure out different ways to do that by using technology, that's great. But automating poor underwriting is not innovation. Sitting from where you are now that we've had certainly quite a lot of data coming through something like mm. key, what's the initial verdict? And it's probably far too soon to say, but yeah. at least on expenses and that kind of thing in terms of lopping off the expense ratio, one would assume that it, that is working. If, obviously, yeah. you have to discount the huge IT costs they've had running it through. Presumably, is it working? And there's still so, so, control? So I, think, I think you're right. It is too soon to tell. I don't think you can call success or failure after a couple of years of any new way of underwriting. But I think what we as a markets team owe the market and the innovators is to spend an awful lot of time with them and deeply understand their models, what their KPIs are, where they see potential volatility or points of learning, such that we kind of go on that journey with them. And we've committed to those who are bringing these new models in that we will spend quite a lot of time with them. So we speak to them from a position of deep understanding of what they're trying to do rather than inbuilt biases, positive or negative. So, for example, I mean, you, as we mentioned, Key, Mark Allen and his team are probably sick of the side of me because I have asked them to spend a bit of time with me so I can get up to speed. But yeah, definitely too early to call and to sort of match the enthusiasm with caution. In the market that we have in 21 and we should have for 22, 23 and beyond, it could be easy to just see profit as the only measure of success, which I think we've got to be a bit more cautious on. These things have got to be able to sustain through a cycle. Use the old analogy, I need to be thinking about what this looks like when the tide is out, not just when the tide is in. You're just talking in general about the marketplace. Just wanted to have your view. We've implied it perhaps through some of the questions. What's your view on rate adequacy right now? And talking to that risk manager that you mentioned, those difficult conversations you probably had with different risk managers over the last couple of years, we've got pretty good underlying profitability, your recent results. Obviously, if it wasn't for all this nasty, volatile stuff that happens, we've got very good underlying profitability baked into the portfolio that Lloyd's is underwriting at the moment. Is there any way you could justify further price rises to risk manager? And if so, sort of what would you be telling them? I would say that we have some quite large disparities between the rate adequacy on different lines across the market. Have we seen considerable rate growth in most classes? Yes. But are we up to rate adequacy across the board? No, not even close in some areas. So I think we're always very cautious not to talk line by line here. But the way we're thinking about it is the sophistication of the pricing models across the market is not uniform. And in some areas, it's actually pretty poor. And some carriers, it's pretty poor. So we must, as a markets team, be supporting the increasing sophistication of pricing models. There's some areas uh, of the market that have not seen anywhere close to the amount of rate rises that, that are needed to get to adequacy to be able to earn a return on capital. And I think going back to our earlier conversation of how do you get relevance for risk managers, we must have sustainable risk exchange with these risk managers. So I think it is fair to say that in certain areas, the underlying pricing is not there for us to be sustainably here, for us to know we're going to be here for you year after year after year to build a sustainable relationship going forward. To me, that's quite important because in sometimes the longevity you have with your insurer allows you to build in those other 
factors that reduce risk, you know, which risk prevention strategies, exchange of expertise, et cetera. Partly transparency. So it's almost that you've got to change the culture to be able to actually show your client, particularly if they're sophisticated enough to have a risk manager, yeah. to say, this is how I price it. It's yeah. no real secret. Yeah. And, you know, if you're below that, then at least they, you've got a good story to tell them to say that now you know why I want a price rise. Yeah, I don't think it's our place at Lloyd's to tell the brokers and the uh, managing agents how to deal with their customers. They're inherently very good at that. But I think we can't relax across the board just because we've had 15 quarters of rate rises. In some cases, those rate rises have been skewed to where it's been needed most, but that doesn't necessarily translate across the market. I think there are other factors as well beyond price. There are certain areas of the market that are probably experiencing hard conditions at the moment. Cyber is probably one, certain elements of the PI and ML markets are probably the same, but they're not because of excessive price taking. It's because there's an awful lot of volatility and a lot of uncertainty on the underlying risk characteristics. So those markets are going to be strained at the moment and finding the right landing point between client and carrier is not easy and we don't expect it to be easy. You can, when you're having a chat with that risk manager, another innovation, but it's, it's more it's something that Lloyd's been toying with and has probably legislated for about 20 years ago, but now being revivified is this potential for captives at Lloyd's. Again, that's obviously something a risk manager would be very interested in. What's that all about? What's behind that? And what's the thinking behind that? And, and what might be the benefits for both sides of the equation? The reasoning behind it is demand, actually, you know, from brokers, from risk carriers, and from customers saying, what is it you can do here? You know, the, I think the captive market is I don't know, 150 billion, depending on how they measure it. It's a, it's a huge market. And in periods where we've got an awful lot of things going on in the world, we've got global tax treaties, we've got less travel, we've got regulation sort of finding a, a balance that is more universal. So having, from a UK perspective anyway, having the onshore capability to run captives from London can be very attractive for multiple reasons. The benefits that Lloyd's have is the licenses, obviously, the credit rating, and therefore the capital that's required, and the expertise. You know, So uh, it's not as if it's our goal to take business out of the carrier market and keep it in captives, but actually to keep the risk exchange live. And by having both sides under the same tent, ensuring that there is the right discourse at the right level. So if people want to take more risk on their own balance sheets, that they're surrounded by the managing agent and broker community at Lloyd's and say, well, at this point, it's more efficient for you to take it off your own balance sheet and give us the excess layers or whatever else. So you can still be an access to do business with that captive also within the Lloyd's sphere. Quite, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's a really key part of it. It's sort of bringing more folks into our risk ecosystem here. And it's not without its challenges. Presumably the other incumbents, you know, traditional managing agents incumbent in the market. So, well, you can't let these people come in and dump a whole load of underpriced risk because it's captive or giving all the coverage that we excluded 20 years ago yep. at the, the price we don't really understand anymore because we stopped pricing for that because we excluded it. So again, so I presume it's going to bring a certain amount of challenges. Of course, but these syndicates or these vehicles will have to have their business plans approved and you'll be looking at how they're pricing the risk, et cetera. Correct. Yeah, no relaxing of standards. There's no bonfire of underwriting standards anywhere coming. So that's not on the card. One of the challenges that we need to deal with is cost, speed, and agility, you know, which we need to ensure that we are competitive with, with other captive markets around the world. But we would certainly see this as being a win-win, that you know, we're not trying to cannibalize business that's already in the market. It's to bring new key partners into our sphere. 
something else has been happening, obviously, is we're sitting face-to-face in the yeah. Woods building up on the 11th floor. It's brilliant to be back. And during the pandemic, we've had a lot of consultation about what the new normal might look like when we're all back. And we are back now and we're substantially back and substantially fully vaccinated and there are people standing outside the Lamb pub, etc. What's going to change, do you think? We've come close to making a decision on what this new room is going to look like and whether we need one or not. I wasn't brought in here for my architectural or design expertise, so my views carry the right amount of weight in this. In discussions I've had with internally, and so some sound bites I could take from some of the CEOs I've been talking about, we're early on our return back to work. So I think most of us are sort of figuring out the new normal. Personally, I find the meeting etiquette of these hybrid situations is the first thing to learn. So make sure we get all the right voices around. But, but from a building perspective, the one common thing that you hear a lot is that the Lloyds building is the fulcrum of the ecosystem within EC3. You know, it has a huge amount of dragging power for brokers, experts, et cetera, around it. So it as a focal point for the industry is important. The form it takes, it's probably early doors in terms of uh, knowing how it is we're going to work. But I could quote two or three CEOs back to you, both said to me, focus on performance there, Pat, will you? Don't worry about your design credentials. And luckily enough, we have excellent teams at Lloyd's dealing with that, all more qualified than me. If the room stays empty for years on end, then we know it's probably time to close it down, isn't it? My prediction would be that's not going to be what happens. I think if people go back to spending five days a week in here, then the importance is manifest. If people are spending less time coming into the market, then it's going to be critical that they don't waste any of it, that they use it to have those serendipitous meetings or key conversations. And for example, one of my favorite cities, and hopefully I get there pretty soon, when you go to New York, you spend a lot of time going up and down on subways or slow cars to get to your meetings. The fact that if we can get folks to come in here and boom, 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 you get it all done in the same building if it's raining or we build all of these beautiful terraces outside where we can enjoy the sunshine a few floors up. Well, fantastic. But I personally don't see obsolescence as one of the more likely outcomes. I'm with you on the downtown, midtown, suddenly realizing that you're in the wrong part of town and you've only got half an hour to get there and then there's a huge traffic jam on the expressway. And, yeah, <laughs> the usual things. Yes, that's definitely a London attribute. Obviously, one thing about Lloyd's of London is that it's not Lloyd's of London, it's the Lloyd's of the whole world. Sure. Um, you know, Lloyd's of Singapore or Brussels, etc. What's your view of that in terms of your strategy around that global distribution? Do we need all those physical locations in different places or, or different outposts? There are always lots of different views on that. Yeah. What's yours? The physical outposts is not something I spend an awful lot of time thinking about. I think the key, the key thing that I have in my mind is the global licenses are one of the unique advantages that Lloyd's has. So they need to be treasured. And we need to take very good care of them and ensure that they deliver what the managing agents need. So they will come under significant strategic focus over the coming months. We've already started a project on that. And simplistically, they can be a great distribution tool for the products of the market, whether the underwriters are here or wherever they are in their own organizations. The ability to provide multinational solutions, so to issue global paper from wherever the managing agent is, in multiple countries, whatever it is, 180 countries. To be able to do that efficiently, to be able to do that in a compliant way with great regulatory relations, the ability to ensure claims are paid quickly, local paper issuance, et cetera, that could be the envy of 
everybody outside of Lloyd's. If we're honest, there's probably a handful, uh, or maybe two handful of global companies who have their own networks. It's extraordinarily expensive to build one if you don't have one already. I would hope that one of the huge benefits of companies that are in Lloyd's, either standalone or dual, would be that ability to distribute and be relevant and be efficient for your customers who are becoming more globalized themselves in all of these markets. So I think they are a treasure to be coveted. Are there any more licenses that you'd like to get? I think it should never be about what I want. I think the benefit of having strategic conversations with the CEOs, the CEOs, or the, the strategic folks is to say, when you look forward, when you look forward two or three years, what do you think the shape of your business is going to be? And what do we need to do to support that? So that's part of the coffee and a biscuit analogy that we talked about earlier. They all suddenly say we need a direct license in Cambodia. Then you start hearing that and you start hearing about what a large opportunity it is. Then it's presume you go and talk to the Cambodian regulators and start process, right? For sure. But at the same time, you know... I don't know have... if you already do have one, by the way. There's too many to keep track of. Right. Phnom Penh is not on the list of uh, places to visit. But I do think that it must be efficient. We can't be taking global dominance or uh, egotistical flag placing as what we want to do. We must ensure that this is something that the market wants, it can pay for, and we can deliver in an efficient way. It seems to be almost a pattern of this conversation is that you're much more sort of demand-driven rather than being a top-down sort of person. Is that a fair description? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're talking about some of the, the innovative things that Lloyd's have been doing, particularly obviously with the COVID thing and then the parcel solution. Yeah. Which obviously was good success for the Lloyd's lab. Yeah. What about something like cyber? It's a maturing class. Obviously, it was the darling of everybody because it gave a lot of growth when nobody was getting any growth anywhere else. Yeah. And at the time, you know, the, the losses hadn't quite started to materialize. And now, of course, frequency and severity have materialized. And of course, I don't know what your view is, but it is also potentially systemically severe. Do you think we would have to go and get a government backstop at some point? Is it in that same category as? terrorism or flood or something to say, you know what, some of these things will need a government backstop. Or again, because obviously you've got those channels to government and the treasury. When you have those conversations with them and GTHQ and all those other people who get involved, yeah. what do you say to them? Do they say, and they ask you what, you what you might need there, would you need a backstop at some point? Maybe I'm in the wrong conversations, but I haven't been asked what I need from the treasury yet. Yeah. So I, maybe I need to, to work on my uh, style there. But uh, <laughs> We've had some really good conversations with multiple government bodies around the world on cyber because I think we're all aligned on what it is we're trying to do. And I think what's critical is getting on the front foot to determine the perimeter of the private market and where public bodies will need to step in, not on the basis that the coverage isn't there at the moment. So getting that perimeter right, and there's an awful lot of work going on in the market about on the outer edge of the perimeter, you know, cover for war, cover for terror, payment of ransomware versus, you know, how we think about it in other markets like the K&R market. So actually getting consistency and getting a common understanding there is critical before you go into the conversations of what other supports are needed. In terms of how we think about the market, I mean, having issued the first policy in, I don't know, 1980-something or 1990-something, Lloyd's now has 20%-ish market share. So to the extent that there are systemic risks, we're obviously not going to be immune to them. We're going to be in the same boat as other elements of the market. I presume you're happy that you've got a PML that you can stick with or a realistic disaster scenario that is going to be an aggregate that's not going to yeah. suddenly replicate itself many times. I think the idea 
when you say sticking with, I mean, I think we've got to evolve them. You know, and we have produced three new RDSs in the last 12 months that we're working with the managing agents as to the implications of those, because the threat has massively shifted. You know, it was about big attacks that we were most worried about probably two or three years ago. And then the, the shift to the frequency of ransomware and looking for sort of smaller amounts. So our need to shift with the risk dynamic and shift to the implications of attacks on critical infrastructure and therefore the, the business interruption or whatever uh, supply chain interruption that comes from those. I think the folks are doing a pretty good job in trying to keep up with the maturity of that market. And that's what we have to do. In my view, that's our role as the markets team in Lloyd's to ensure that we can support the development of the market going forward, not to run in the face of changing risk dynamics, but to actually think about things both from a measuring the risk perspective, as you say, the PMLing or the RDS scenarios, but also operationally, one of the things that the market should expect from us over, you know, over the next three or six months. We've done our thematic review, which we'll be bringing out uh, later in Q4, but we need to run pre-mortems that have a pretty wide base of learning. Are we operationally there? Can the claims be paid? Are the wordings robust enough to have the flow? Are we doing enough to mitigate after the point of attack as a market? So I think that is all part of the positive and the good oversight that the market should expect from us on cyber and other classes for that matter. But I think if you did a straw poll, I think some of the critics of the, the way we're doing things will say, well, you know, Lloyd's are being too draconian on allowing us to grow. My response to that is that this is not an area to dabble in. You need to know what you're doing soup to nuts. You, know, you need to have the pricing, the risk selection, good underwriting, the ability to prevent and assess the threat levels and actually then to reserve it. So we're not making an awful lot of apologies for looking for that level of sophistication as folks go into it. And when you have that, we're being supportive. This is really about a connection to the client. It sounds like the sort of thing you don't necessarily want to be in a high access layer because you've no real connection to what's going on. I think there are different models out there. Some believe that the, you know, staying out of the current levels of ransomware is a better way to go. Some believe that they've got to be, as you say, really deeply embedded with the client to allow the expertise that they've got by hiring folks who used to work in GCHQ or in CIA or whatever or else. Hacking. <laughs> We're quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the service element is a key part of it. But like I say, it's not for us to say to people, we don't want to see any underwriting this way or the other way. We've got to be able to ensure that we're fairly assessing and that there is that aerated level of market. If everybody's in the same place, we increase the concentration risk. And if everybody runs, then you know we're not that relevant. Yeah, that's the question. Do you think you need a state backing or some kind of public solution to be relevant, to stay relevant? If the class keeps growing, just the limits become too small. What we can do in that debate is to show what is covered now and show what isn't. And in the more extreme scenarios to say, well, this is not going to be covered by insurance as it stands today. Is there something that needs to be done for the event? I think that's the critical part. And that's more public policy really, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think that's where, you know, we talk about leadership. This is where rather than sort of sitting in a bunker saying, that doesn't look good. I hope I'm not around when that happens. To actually get out on the on the front foot and say, this is what we think could be the impact of X, Y, or Z scenario. Is there something that we want to do pre those events? Because we've only ever done this as an industry after the event, particularly with terrorism. 
It's a mixture of willingness to pay on the customer side and willingness to put up the significant capital that's required either from a public level or, or, or wherever else. But lessons learned from the last two years, we should talk about it and then consciously decide what we put in place for future eventualities. Well, good luck with whatever the this iteration of the government solution with COVID will, may or may not be, and um, we'll see. But, yeah. um, All I would say, a very last point, is that there is very strong, positive market engagement on these sort of things, both from within and outside the Lloyd's market, from primary and reinsurers. There's good willingness at the moment to engage with and try and tackle these issues. So, you know, long may that continue. Excellent. Well, and a captive expert explained to me, of course, you, if you're not insuring a third party, so you can put all your COVID risk in a captive, of course, as long as you've got enough money to save up for it. But you have to depend. If it's 1% of all your revenue, then you might not want to do that. One last thing would be, one of the things about trying to get around in person in London is that you, you can't usually move for some environmental protest one day or another. In, in Lime Street, we've had fake coal dumped in the road and, and we've having people sort of chaining themselves to main highways and, or gluing themselves, I think, to things. And with COP26 coming up, it's just absolutely top of the agenda. And the industry is very much in the crosshairs of, of a lot of environmentalists. In fact, when I was here with John Neal this time last year, he kind of envied the environmentalists. They have the luxury of having fundamentalism, whereas we live in this real world where, we, of course, we're still burning some coal and burning gas, and we're transitioning to this world where, we, you know, by 2050, we hope we're going to be carbon neutral or carbon and zero. Well, how does the industry work at you know, keeping the lights on for today while working towards a completely green future in 20, 30 years' time? Um, sort of, what's your role in making that transition? serving current customers, but at the same time, sort of trying to help nudge them to become greener. I think the key thing to say first and foremost is that Lloyd's is a market. And so different pronouncements from different insurance companies come from different motivations. I think John has been very clear in saying that it's not for us to set or reset public policy. Public policy is set by governments. And we respond to that. And so as we stand back, we say that any business that doesn't have a carbon net zero target by 2050 or whatever time they want to set for themselves is unlikely to be a sustainable business. But to pull the rug in a knee-jerk fashion today will build problems, won't help us to get there. So fundamentally, from our perspective, our role in ensuring the transition is key and that we do it from an intelligent, smart way that acts as a catalyst or an accelerator for businesses to achieve their net zero desires, targets, whatever. So we're not going to run away from the problem. We accept that it is a critical time to act, but acting smartly is key. You know, So we would expect that using intelligence, measurement, the right strategies to allow the transition for both carriers and customers is the right way to go forward on this. So again, it sounds like less of a top-down type approach. You're not you're suddenly saying, right, no coal ever. Uh, in Lloyd's or obviously most so many of your members are now public companies with their yeah. own ESG yeah. commitments and their own investors pressurizing them on ESG. So you're going to let them more or less write those terms rather than you doing it. We will have a framework and ensure that there is transparency. So we do not want to be the market of last resort. You can't get cover anywhere else. So you turn up at Lloyd's and see what happens. That's not our goal. So it's not sustainable by definition. It might be very profitable right. though for 10 years, but um, not, it's not what you want to be involved in, I presume. Correct. And I think that your point is absolutely spot on, that the pressure from investors is overwhelming. You know, So it's unlikely that that pressure will not change the business models of those companies. 
But I think it's important as well to remember that there's ES and G, and that it is not going to be in the interests of society as a whole or advance social good if we just pull the drawbridge up, uh, particularly on development economies or, or needing the power to actually drive the transition. We're seeing globally at the moment that transition is not easy, that when certain disruptions happen in key supply chains or key energy generation facilities can actually cause quite a lot of disruption. So ensuring that we have a sensible and sustainable transition from fossil to non-carbon renewables or whatever is critical. But one thing we can do is get on the front foot for being solution-orientated for those companies that are making strides on renewables or alternative sources of power, hydrogen, whatever else. So being brave in that world is pretty important. And you know, I think the industry has done quite a lot under the SMI initiative that this Marks initiative that Lloyd's is sharing on behalf of the industry. So it's not as if we're sort of sitting and just sort of waiting to see what happens. I think getting on the front foot and being brave on those areas is kind of what we're here to do. Well. I've taken up a huge amount of your time. I really, really appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners will too. So I think it only remains for me to thank you very, very much for giving up some of that time and being so frank. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.